Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the story of Lizzie Borden. But first, your true crime headlines. A manslaughter trial is underway for a Florida man who shot and killed another man in a dispute over a parking space. 49-year-old Michael Draca is charged in the shooting death of 28-year-old Marquise McLaughlin in July of 2018. McLaughlin and his girlfriend, 24-year-old Brittany Jacobs, stopped at a convenience store in Clearwater, Florida with their three young children. Jacobs was driving and pulled into the store's only handicapped parking spot. McLaughlin and their five-year-old son, Marquise Jr., went inside the store and Jacobs stayed outside in the car with the couple's other two children. While Jacobs was waiting in the car, Michael Draca pulled into the parking lot. He got out of his car and confronted Jacobs about parking in the handicapped space. The confrontation was captured on store surveillance video, which shows Draca standing near Jacobs' car when Marquise McLaughlin comes out of the store and pushes Draca, knocking him to the ground. Seconds later, Draca, still on the ground, fires a shot at McLaughlin, striking him in the abdomen. Marquise McLaughlin died of his injuries. Michael Draca cooperated with police, telling them that he feared for his life and shot McLaughlin in self-defense. The day after the shooting, the Pinellas County Sheriff held a press conference announcing that he would not be charging Michael Draca with any crime citing Florida's stand-your-ground laws and Draca's claim of self-defense. He said that the investigation would continue and would be passed along to the state attorney. In August of 2018, detectives recommended to the state attorney that Michael Draca be charged with manslaughter for the shooting of Marquise McLaughlin. Over the course of their investigation, detectives had interviewed other people who recalled similar interactions with Draca including a confrontation at the same market over the same parking space five months earlier. The driver from that incident, a black man, told investigators that Draca, who is white, used a racial slur when talking to him and threatened to shoot him. The judge called the incidents strikingly similar and is allowing details of the earlier confrontation to be presented during the trial with the exclusion of the racial slur. If convicted, Michael Draca faces a possible sentence of 30 years in prison. A waiter in a Paris suburb was shot to death by a customer who was angry about his meal taking too long, according to witnesses. The 28-year-old waiter was working at a sandwich shop about nine miles from the center of Paris. The customer, angry that his sandwich was taking too long to prepare, pulled out a handgun and shot the waiter in the shoulder. The waiter died at the scene, and the shooter fled and remains at large. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Lizzie Borden. But first, a quick break. My mother always told me, wear clean underwear. You never know when you're going to be in an accident. But I wouldn't be caught dead in ugly, ill-fitting underwear. That's why I wear Third Love. Third Love knows that you're not just a number. 
Their Fit Finder quiz helps you identify your breast size and most importantly, shape, to find bra styles that actually fit your body. I'm currently writing about murder while wearing their beautiful black lace contour plunge bra and lace back cheeky, and it fits like a sexy noir dream come true. Because Third Love offers more than 70 sizes, including half cup sizes, including half cup sizes. And if you're not sure which size and shape you are, Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are always available to help. And Third Love promises you a perfect fit. Just wear your beautiful new bra, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it within 60 days and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Returns and exchanges are free and easy, but trust me, you won't need it. This lingerie is killer. Go to thirdlove.com minute now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash minute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, one of the most famous murders in American history. This is the story of Lizzie Borden. In 1892, the town of Fall River, Massachusetts was among the largest cotton textile manufacturing centers in the world and was home to some of the wealthiest families in the United States. Up in the affluent neighborhood known as the Hill, wealthy society families lived in lavish homes complete with gas lighting, indoor plumbing, servants, and all the luxuries that their privileged names afforded them. The working poor and immigrants lived down by the river, close to the mills. And somewhere in between, in a middle-class Irish Catholic neighborhood, in a modest house at 92 2nd Street, lived the Borden family. They were Andrew Jackson Borden, age 72, his second wife, Abby, 66, the family's new live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan, 25, who they for some reason called Maggie, and Andrew's two unmarried daughters, Emma Borden, 42, and Lizzie Borden, 32. Andrew Borden's first wife, Sarah Morse, died when Emma was just 12 and Lizzie was two years old. On her mother's deathbed, Emma vowed to always take care of baby Lizzie. Emma devoted herself to caring for Lizzie, who always said that Emma was more of a mother to her than a sister. But Andrew Borden needed a wife. Three years after their mother's death, Andrew married a 37-year-old spinster named Abby Gray, a woman who Lizzie believed only married their father for his money. Although the family's lifestyle appeared middle class, the Bordens were, in fact, one of the seven wealthiest families who controlled the town of Fall River. 
Despite their wealth and breeding, Andrew Borden wanted no part in the extravagant lifestyle up on the hill. Unlike his cousins, who resided in the elite and fashionable district, Andrew Borden wasn't born rich, had no inheritance, and struggled to earn every penny of his fortune through hard work and wise investments. He began his career making furniture and coffins, going on to become a successful property developer, the director of several textile mills, owner of a considerable amount of commercial property, and both president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust. By the time he reached his 70s, Andrew Borden's estate was worth roughly $300,000, equivalent to nearly $10 million today. But Andrew Borden was a miser and refused to move out of the modest house on 2nd Street, which lacked modern conveniences like indoor plumbing and electricity, lit only by kerosene lamps, which even by that time were 20 years out of date. Even by middle-class standards, the Borden family were living well below their means. Lizzie hated the house and felt that she belonged on the hill like her cousins, living in the comfortable lifestyle that their wealth and standing could afford them. While other young women of their social class had fine dresses, active social lives, and were well on their way to marrying and starting families of their own, in the house on 2nd Street, the Borden sisters scrimped and saved their meager allowances, were isolated, and had no suitors. Being completely cut off from the only social circles that were considered suitable for ladies of their breeding to mingle in. For the Borden sisters, their only other social outlet was the church. Lizzie occupied herself teaching Sunday school to immigrant children and served as secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. She joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union and was a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. At home, Lizzie busied herself building a roost in the backyard barn where she kept pigeons. Living with your parents in your 30s would be socially awkward by today's standards, but in the late 1800s, Lizzie and Emma, still unmarried and living at home, were considered spinsters, and tension was building inside the boarding house. In 1887, Andrew Borden bought a house for his wife, Abby, who gave it to her younger sister to save her from eviction. Emma and Lizzie were furious. The sisters resented their father's generosity toward their stepmother's family. To keep the peace, Andrew Borden gave his daughters their grandfather's house, along with the rental income it generated. But the gesture did little to win Andrew his daughter's forgiveness. Lizzie now refused to call Abby mother, contemptuously calling her stepmother 
Mrs. Borden. And the sisters stopped taking meals with their father and stepmother. In 1890, perhaps to appease his daughter, or perhaps because he knew that the young women were going stir-crazy in the house on 2nd Street, after yet another family argument, Andrew sent Lizzie on a grand tour of Europe with some of her wealthy Borden cousins. But Lizzie returned from the trip more frustrated than ever before. In June of 1891, while Andrew and Abby were away, the Borden house was mysteriously burglarized in broad daylight. Fifty dollars and some jewelry were stolen out of Mrs. Borden's desk on the second floor, but nothing else in the house was disturbed. Lizzie, Emma, and the maid Bridget were all at home during the supposed robbery, and none reported hearing an intruder. When police arrived to investigate, suspicion immediately fell upon Lizzie, who had a reputation as a shoplifter. Lizzie took them on a tour of the house and showed the police where a screen door was loose, claiming that this must have been where the intruder entered. But police weren't convinced. Lizzie's reputation for stealing was so well known that the clerks at the department store in town were told that if Lizzie ever stole anything, to simply write it down and bill her father. When Andrew Borden learned of this latest incident, he had the investigation called off. From that day forward, Andrew Borden began a policy of locking all of the doors in the Borden house. Every day, Andrew locked his own bedroom door, took the key into the sitting room, and strangely, placed the key in full view on the mantel, where everyone could see it, as if to send a message to the family. In June of 1892, Andrew Borden reportedly took a hatchet and slaughtered some of Lizzie's beloved pigeons. Though there is little but rumors to support this. But in July of 1892, after another heated family argument, perhaps over Lizzie's pigeons, both Emma and Lizzie went on vacations to New Bedford. After returning to Fall River, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before finally returning to the house on 2nd Street. On Wednesday, August 3rd, 1892, Emma was still out of town visiting friends in Fairhaven, and the entire Borden household had been violently ill for several days. Mrs. Borden feared poisoning, as her husband was not exactly a popular man. The relentless businessman had made a few enemies on his rise to the top. Mrs. Borden called on Dr. Bowen, who lived across the street, telling him that she was afraid that someone had poisoned their bread. Dr. Bowen examined her and tried to put her mind at ease. 
That evening, Lizzie visited her friend Alice and told her that she was afraid that her father had an enemy who had poisoned their milk. Lizzie told Alice that there was a man seen hanging around the house and how the barn and house had been broken into in broad daylight. She told Alice that she had to sleep with one eye open half the time and that she was afraid that the house would be burned down right over their heads. That night, Lizzie and Emma's uncle, John Morse, brother of their deceased mother, arrived to the house for a visit and slept in the guest bedroom. At 7 a.m. on Thursday, August 4th, Mr. and Mrs. Borden and John Morse were served breakfast by the Borden's maid, Bridget. Lizzie, who no longer dined with her father and stepmother, did not join them. After breakfast, Andrew and John went into the sitting room, where they chatted about family matters for roughly an hour. John left the house just before 9 a.m. to visit with other family members across town and planned to return to the Borden house at noon for lunch. Shortly after his departure, around 9 a.m., Andrew Borden left the house to attend to some business. Mrs. Borden then instructed Bridget to go outside and clean the first floor windows. Cleaning the guest room was usually one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, but sometime after 9 a.m., Mrs. Borden went upstairs to make the bed. Around 10.30 a.m., Andrew Borden wasn't feeling well and decided to return to the house early. When he arrived, his key failed to open the door. It was locked. Mr. Borden knocked. He knocked again. The maid, Bridget, who had been outside cleaning the windows, rushed to open the door. But it was jammed. As Bridget struggled with the door, she let an expletive slip and heard a laugh that she thought came from the top of the stairs. It was Lizzie. Bridget finally opened the door and Mr. Borden came inside. When Lizzie entered the room, Mr. Borden asked her where his wife was. Lizzie told her father that Mrs. Borden had received a note about a friend who was ill and that she had gone out to visit them. Andrew Borden decided to lay down on the couch in the sitting room and take a nap before lunch. Bridget, who was also feeling unwell, perhaps from whatever had been ailing the family for the past several days, had thrown up outside while cleaning the windows. Bridget excused herself and went upstairs to rest in her bedroom on the third floor. But at 11.10 a.m., Bridget's rest was abruptly halted when Lizzie screamed. Come down quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Bridget hurried down the stairs to the sitting room. 
There was Lizzie, standing over the bloody and almost unrecognizable body of Andrew Borden, slumped on the couch, hacked to death with a hatchet. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in half. His nose was completely severed from his face. Lizzie told Bridget to hurry across the street and fetch Dr. Bowen. By the time the doctor arrived, the commotion at the Borden house was already beginning to draw a crowd. Upon examining the body, still bleeding on the couch, the doctor observed that Andrew Borden must have been killed around 11 a.m., just minutes before Lizzie found him. As the crowd outside grew, no one yet realized that a second victim lay dead on the second floor, waiting to be discovered. When asked where Mrs. Borden was, Lizzie first told them that she thought she'd left the house because Mrs. Borden received a note that morning asking her to visit a sick friend. But Lizzie then said that she may have heard her come in and asked Bridget to go upstairs and check if Mrs. Borden was in the house. Bridget and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, went up the stairs. About halfway up, their eyes level with the floor, Bridget and Mrs. Churchill looked into the guest room and saw Mrs. Borden on the floor beside the bed, face down in a pool of blood. Mrs. Borden had been hacked to death. The back of her head was completely caved in in a bloody pulp. Dr. Bowen examined her body and observed that in contrast to Mr. Borden, the blood on Mrs. Borden had already begun to dry and congeal. This, he concluded, meant that Mrs. Borden must have been killed first. Finally, someone called the police. But in 1892, in Fall River, police were ill-equipped to investigate a murder scene. The Fall River police spent most of their time arresting drunks and prostitutes and responding to the occasional robbery. Police detective work and forensics were in their infancy, and Fall River police had no experience with new techniques like dusting for fingerprints. Police nonetheless began their investigation by questioning everyone in the house, conducting a search of the property, which would later be criticized as lacking thoroughness, and calling a photographer to document the crime scene before allowing the county medical examiner, Dr. Dolan, to move the bodies downstairs, where he performed autopsies on Mr. and Mrs. Borden, right on the Borden family's dining room table. Authorities began piecing together a timeline. They concluded that Mrs. Borden was murdered first, sometime between 9 and 10 a.m., 
confirming Dr. Bowen's observations of the congealed blood. The evidence suggested that Mrs. Borden was facing her attacker when she was struck by the first blow on the side of her head, just above her ear, causing her to turn and fall face down onto the floor, bruising her nose and forehead. The murderer then delivered 18 more fatal blows to the back of her head. Andrew Borden's time of death was placed at around 11 a.m., meaning that whoever murdered the couple potentially hid in the house for as long as two hours between the two killings. As dozens of policemen, reporters, and neighbors trooped in and out of the Borden home and doctors completed their post-mortem in full view, Lizzie was questioned by Deputy Marshal Fleet, who noted that Lizzie seemed detached and gave a startling response when Fleet referred to Mrs. Borden as Lizzie's mother. She's not my mother, Lizzie snapped back. She is my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. I was surprised at the way Miss Lizzie carried herself, and I must say that I admire her nerve, reported an investigating officer. She did not appear to be in the least bit excited or worried. I have wondered why she did not faint upon her discovery of the dead body of her father. Most women would have done so, for a more horrible sight I never saw, and I have walked over a battlefield where thousands lay mangled and dead. In the basement of the Borden house, police found two hatchets, two axes, and one hatchet head with a broken handle. Police identified the hatchet head as a potential murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it appear as though it had been in the basement for some time. Police first suspected Uncle John Morse, but his alibi was airtight as he was visiting with relatives across town at the time of the murders. The maid, Bridget Sullivan, was quickly dismissed, as police could not imagine why the maid would want to kill her employers, leaving herself out of a job. If, as Lizzie said, a business enemy wanted Andrew Borden dead, police wondered, why would they kill Mrs. Borden first? And how would they have hidden for almost two hours in the home undetected? The only other possible suspect was Lizzie. Lizzie and Emma did, after all, stand to inherit the family fortune if her father and stepmother passed away. Emma, of course, was not a suspect as she was out of town. But police could not believe that a young woman, especially one of Lizzie's social upbringing, was capable of such a brutally violent crime. In the rare events that a woman did commit murder, it was usually by poison. And Lizzie, after all, had no visible bloodstains on her. 
Surely, they thought, no one could commit such a brutal murder in this manner without being covered in blood splatter. And Lizzie, they believed, couldn't possibly have cleaned off the blood and changed into a new dress in just the few short minutes between her father's murder and when she screamed for Bridget. Or could she? And where was the note that her stepmother allegedly received? The following day, under the headline, Shocking Crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home, the Fall River Herald reported that news of the Borden murders, quote, spread like wildfire and hundreds poured onto Second Street, where, for years, Andrew J. Borden and his wife had lived in happiness, end quote. The Fall River Herald reporter had visited the scene of the crime and described the face of Mr. Borden as sickening. Quote, over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt. The room was in order and there were no signs of a scuffle of any kind. End quote. But within two days of the murder, papers all over the country began reporting evidence that Lizzie Borden might have had something to do with her parents' murders. On Saturday, August 6th, services were held for Mr. and Mrs. Borden, who were buried at Oak Grove Cemetery. After the funeral, the mayor informed Lizzie that she was a suspect. The next morning, Lizzie's friend Alice, who had been by her friend's side since the murders, saw Lizzie in the kitchen, burning her blue corduroy dress in the stove. Lizzie claimed that the dress was covered in paint and that she had been meaning to dispose of it. The following week, Lizzie Borden was summoned to an inquest. During her four hours examination, Lizzie's behavior under questioning was erratic, often contradicting herself, providing conflicting accounts of her whereabouts the morning of the murders. She claimed to have been in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home. Then she claimed that she was in the dining room ironing handkerchiefs. Then that she was outside in the barn looking for lead sinkers for a fishing trip. Then that she had spent 20 minutes outside eating pears. She also claimed to have removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, despite police photographs clearly showing that Andrew Borden was wearing his boots at the time of his death. Lizzie even refused to answer some questions, even though the answer was actually helpful to her case. This confused testimony may have been the result of Lizzie Borden having been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves. Even Dr. Bowen later agreed 
that his morphine prescription was likely to blame for Lizzie's bizarre account during the inquest. But Lizzie's testimony was not the only evidence against her. During the inquest, a druggist testified that the day before the murders, Lizzie had come into his pharmacy attempting to purchase a poison. She requested prussic acid, she claimed, to clean a sealskin cape. They did not sell Lizzie the poison. News of the inquest received press attention nationwide. The Boston Globe even ran an extensive three-page write-up on the case, reporting rumors that, quote, Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully and that for a considerable time back they have not spoken, end quote. The Boston Herald, meanwhile, viewed Lizzie as above suspicion. Quote, from the consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. End quote. Public opinion was similarly split when it came to Lizzie Borden. While many believed that she was guilty of the murders and wished to see her hang, Lizzie also had many supporters, both in her hometown and across the country. Her family, her reverence, the congregation, and much of society on the hill stood by Lizzie, insisting that she was incapable of such a horrific crime. Feminist groups across the country wrote in support and defense of Lizzie, feeling that she was being persecuted. The public was obsessed with the Lizzie Borden case, and police began receiving letters from all over the country. Everyone from amateur detectives to psychic mediums wrote to authorities in Fall River, sending in their theories and attempting to help investigators crack the case. Soon, a new rhyme was heard on playgrounds across the country. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. This has been Murder Minute. Next week, part two of Lizzie Borden. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.